Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. One of the earliest formula for proclaiming the gospel is that Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so the gospel which Paul delivered, we might say the gospel which he traditioned or from which the tradition comes, is from the first according to the scriptures. And of course the scriptures to which Paul is referring here are not the four gospels, but the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And so when the New Testament writers refer to the scriptures, they're referring to the Hebrew Bible. And when they refer to the gospel, it's not located in a specific text. And what came to be recognized as canonical gospels are always described as the gospel according to. The gospel is not fixed in a particular text, but it is an interpretive relationship to the scriptures, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And so before the formation of the New Testament, there was the presumption that there is a correct reading and that the canon of scripture would cohere and fit together. As John 1.18 puts it, that there is one Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father, who alone has made known, and the word here, made known, he has exegeted, you know, that's the word we use for reading scripture. He's exegeted the Father to us. How do you know God? You know God through Christ's exegesis. And the New Testament, then, is really just a continuing exegesis of the Hebrew scriptures through Christ. So look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, and I'll reference Hebrews along with some other scriptures here, but it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And so the writer of the Hebrews makes the argument, the former presentation, you know, through the fathers, the prophets, the many portions, the many ways, the law, that that is a shadow compared to the reality of Christ. Christ is the meaning of, of God in the scriptures. He's the meaning of the utterance of God in the scriptures. He is the interpretive key giving coherence to the Bible. Without Christ, the scriptures do not present God to us. So Christ makes the scriptures come alive. He is the frame for reading 
and comprehending and measuring. We know from what is contained in the New Testament, you know, what's under contention between false teaching and orthodoxy, how do we read rightly? And the danger is that some would imagine they understand Christ subsequent to the law and the God of the law. That is, we get fixed who God is through the law and then we fit Christ to that understanding. That we fit Christ to the frame of the Old Testament, the law, and the God of the law, rather than the other way around. And so we call these two readings of Scripture a contractual reading and an apocalyptic understanding. And the difference between contractual and apocalyptic theology, it's really a world apart. In that contractual theology presumes history, law, human experience, human intellect are adequate or at least semi-adequate for prompting and recognizing the work of Christ. That is, it's not apocalyptic. It's not a breaking in. It's not a one cosmic order against another. And the scale of salvation in this understanding, in this contractual understanding, is really limited to humanity and actually limited to individuals or just individual souls. It harmonizes, or at least it attempts to harmonize, the God of the law with the image of God revealed in Christ. And any tension within Scripture between the Hebrew and Christian understanding of God is kind of glossed over. The apocalyptic reading does not hesitate to set aside the law. I believe that's what Paul is doing, what the writer of Hebrews is doing. That the image of God even portrayed in the law is now set aside. And even acts attributed to God, which the writer of Hebrews says, well that wasn't God, those were angels. It was angels who delivered the law to Moses. Both Stephen in Acts and the writer of Hebrews makes it clear. The law did not come directly from God, but was delivered by angels. And of course, this is partly what Paul is up against, what the writer of Hebrews is up against, to mistake the message, their message, you know, of the, the angels and the presence for the full substance and reality of Christ Paul is going to equate it with idolatry. That you're deifying what is not God. And Paul takes this a step further, indicating that the Lord of Israel, this was an angelic mediator, and should not be confused with the Father of Christ. The law delivered through this, the one perceived as God, along with his reign, it was a mediating phase displaced by the real thing. Now we have the true representation of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is arguing throughout. Paul says, why the law then? He says it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Galatians 3.19 and Paul is quick to explain that, you know, the problem is not with the law. It's not with the mediation or with the mediator. 
The problem is to imagine that that's the end of the thing. You take this temporary measure and you imagine that it's permanent. And he's arguing that the law is temporary, but he also suggests the one doing this, mediating, was not even God per se, but a mediator for God. This is Galatians 3.20. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. This mediating personage is not God and is not life-giving. And his message is only partial. Galatians 3.21 For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. The law was inadequate. In Galatians 4.8 he equates returning to the law as returning to the enslavement quote to those who by nature are not gods. And throughout Galatians, you know, when he is quoting here, he's actually quoting from 1 Chronicles to observe or keep Sabbaths, to keep new moons, to keep feasts. This is what the false teachers are arguing. We have to keep these Old Testament laws. Yet these things which might once have been mistaken for divine ordinances... Paul says in 4, 8 to 10, these are weak and miserable forces who by nature are not gods. You mistake these things for God, God's message, or for God, it's the equivalent of idolatry. This is the mediator, this weak and miserable force, presumed to be God, but the scripture, he says in Galatians 3, 22, has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There was no access to God. There was no access to life or to righteousness as this mediating system shut up everyone to sin. So it pointed beyond itself to the reality of Christ. As the writer of Hebrews indicates, the laws, the institutions making up Israel, look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. He says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Verse 1. Not the realities themselves. These are shadows. These are fabrications. These are fleshly kind of understanding. The writer then nods toward the prophetic tradition. He quotes Psalms 40 here, in which the voice commanding sacrifices and institutions of sacrifice, you know, this would include the temple, it would include the altar and priests. He says this wasn't conveying the will of God. Verse 5 to 6 of chapter 10. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Jeremiah says it even more bluntly. In the voice of God, the prophet says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus quotes Hosea to indicate what God really wants. Go and learn that what this means I desire compassion 
and not sacrifice. Matthew 9.13 For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. A clear tension is here. Because there are many passages where God or at least a mediator, an angel does command sacrifice and seems to enjoy the pleasing aroma. This is in Genesis 8.20. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma of Noah's sacrifice and his anger is pictured as being calmed. Exodus pictures God, or at least his messenger, demanding sacrifice and finding pleasure in the smell. He says, Exodus 29.18, You shall offer up and smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma. An offering by fire to the Lord. Every indication is that from a series of passages that God commanded sacrifice. And that he enjoyed the, the sacrifice. And yet there are an equal or at least a, a counter tradition that indicate these were not commands from God. And of course what the writer of Hebrews is saying these were not from God directly. These were through the mediators. In Psalms 59 to 10, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The passage that Jesus quotes. I desire acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah 1.11 I take no pleasure, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Jeremiah 7.22 God says, I'm paraphrasing, I think you've confused me with someone else. I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. There's the tension. How do we resolve this tension? We resolve the tension in Christ. Christ has broken into the world portrayed in the Old Testament. This apocalyptic unfolding. You know, in its depiction of the problem and the solution, it's of cosmic dimensions. The world has been enslaved to forces, spiritual and heavenly and physical and terrestrial. The rulers of the prince of the power of the air, Paul says, the rulers of the sky have taken captive. The kingdoms of this world with various spirits, religions, gods, represented in heavenly and earthly rulers, and they're dividing the world up between themselves. And so the story of salvation involves the entire cosmic order. This is the way Paul depicts it in Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians. In Ephesians he says Christ has challenged the archons or so-called gods of the nations. In other words, they imagine they're gods, but they're not gods. And we may imagine that Paul is not including Israel's understanding of God. But what we see is that the law, the angels, taken as an end in themselves, the givers of the law are among the powers challenged by Christ. 
Now we have the full image of God. And Paul describes this as a release from captivity, as setting free from delusion. And his fear is that Christians will forsake the truth for the lie of false religion. And this is Colossians 2.18. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions from self-abasement inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So the worship of angels. F.F. Bruce says, well, this seems to be the angels who delivered the law. They're taking these as God himself. Reading the law equal with Christ is the equivalent of the worship of angels. Novation, one of the early church fathers, he says, maybe God has allowed himself to be fit to a frame of understanding he says, quote, not as God was, but as the people were able to understand. That's what the New Testament says. In times past, God overlooked your ignorance. But now with the coming of Christ, he demands all people everywhere to repent. As Gregory of Nazianzus puts it, God allowed fallen understanding to be mixed with right understanding, maybe as an accommodation. But the point is, the reality of God is obscure, even according to the Old Testament, in many of the Hebrew scriptures, in their portrayal of God. And to fail to miss the possible accommodation, and to presume to make all things equal in the Bible, will amount to committing the very error Paul is warning against. Law sacrifices, blood offerings, new moons, Sabbath keeping, taken as more than a shadow, he says, this amounts to idolatry. These things are in danger of enslaving you again, he says. These become an enslaving God in competition with the Father of Christ. So as Paul and the Hebrew scriptures indicate, the law was given then through angels, the lesser spirits, these in no way attain to the reality of God. Now we don't quite know from scripture how did the powers come to rule, but what we can see is that they now have been defeated. This is from Colossians 2, 16 to 17. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And then listen to the things that are triumphed over. No one is to judge you in regard to food or drink, Jewish food laws, in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, again the quotation from Chronicles, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the basic principles that he's talking about here, they now threaten and again and they're precisely those things commanded in the law. 1 Chronicles 23, 21. That's what he's quoting. So these Old Testament false teachers saying, you're not following the Bible. And Paul says, if you follow the Bible on this point, it's a return to the enslavement of idolatry. And so the Colossians, like the Ephesians and Galatians, they're being lured back into a Judaized Christianity in which the law is pictured as necessary. It's a kind of first order arrangement, much like in contractual theology. 
And Paul argues that the specific way in which the reign of death is exercised is precisely through human subjection to laws, principles, powers, which have no substance. He's talking about the Jewish law. I don't think he's just talking about that, but he's including that. These things are lacking in truth and reality. And yet these shadowy powers once reigned where Christ now reigns. I think the principalities and powers, you know, what's defeated? The archons of the age, the thrones and dominions. I think Paul is speaking of a mixed bag, you know, of malevolent spirits, corrupted and incomplete principles. And it's inclusive. In Galatians 3.1, he talks about the law bewitching people. This kind of misapprehension of the importance of the law. He equates it in 3.3 with the principle of the flesh. Literally, the Galatians, the false teachers there, are going to circumcise people. He says in 2.21 that you're reducing Christ to insignificance, to nothing. And with the equivalent, he says that this is in 4.8-9, to he says this is a return to idolatry. You're going to return to the elemental principles of the world. 4.3. Origen is an early example of one who equates theophanies, that is these appearances, with actually malignant spirits. And he pictures the one commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son. I'm not saying I'm agreeing with him, I'm just giving you an example. He says this was a malign spirit. He equates this spirit with, you know, the, in Exodus it talks about a destroying angel slaying the firstborn in Egypt. He equates it with, in 1 Samuel, the, the spirit who came mightily upon Saul with the deceiving spirit sent from God. And so Origen recognizes that the violence of the Hebrew Bible is mitigated and to be read through the peace of Christ so that violence and a spirit of violence, certainly a spirit of deception, is unworthy of God and is not to be identified with God. And the way that Paul pictures in Galatians, he, he says there's two ways of reading, there's two interpretive methods. This is from Galatians 4. He says that we can read according to the flesh, according to the slave woman, Hagar, or we can read according to the free woman, born as a result of the divine promise. For Paul, these metaphorically, you know, these two sons illustrated two very different ways of perceiving God. You can perceive God through the slave woman, the covenant, the law, for they strive to be related to God based on their effort. Or you can see God in contrast through Sarah, or the son of Sarah, who's actually Christ, the children of promise, who say, he says in 2029, 20, who are born of the Spirit. The power of the flesh is intermixed with a trust in the law. That's what he's saying. Which reduces in Paul's argument. Actually, the, the flesh and the law can be equated in this instance. And of course, it all has to do with Abraham. In one instance, Abraham did entrust himself to the power of the flesh because he had a son through the handmaiden. In the other instance, he trusted the power of the promise. I think what Paul is saying to the Galatians and the false teachers, you can read the Bible in a fleshly manner and displace Christ, giving precedent not to Christ, but to the law. 
And Christ then has conquered this whole mixed bag of malevolent principles, enslaving powers, the archons, the thrones, the dominions, inclusive of those connected to the law and the giving of the law. Paul is not concerned to sort out and save the one who mediated the law from other powers. I believe this fits with an apocalyptic reading in which the old world order, you know, this is what Paul is presenting. One, the evil age is being intersected, undone, through this apocalyptic breaking in of Christ. It's disrupted, it's defeated. And there's no middle position between these two between slavery to the principles and to freedom. That's what Paul's argument is. The Jews have no advantage. The Jew, he says in Galatians 2, 16 to 20, you know, they have the same problem, the same enslavement. So basically he's saying, this is my conclusion, I'm doing my own reading here of Galatians 4, 10 to 11. He's saying, go ahead and observe the law and pretend the God who sends evil and deceiving spirits which enslave mankind and which enslaves the Jews pertains to the reality of God. But understand in doing this, in observing special days, months and seasons and years and turning back to the mediating angel of the law, he says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you for this has nothing to do with the God revealed in Christ Jesus. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.